Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways technology and innovation are making the world a safer, more peaceful, and more prosperous place. Have you ever made a move to a different state or a city and been shocked at the increased sticker price when buying a home? Maybe you just chalked it up to the natural cost of living in a desirable area, putting your kids in the best public school district, or being close to a thriving job market. So you, 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 swallow, you swallow your discontent and pay what you have to pay. But here's the dirty little secret of urban housing in America. A significant portion of that increase in median housing cost is entirely unnecessary, an artifact of zoning boards and other ill-conceived housing policies. And here to discuss this subject with me this week is Salim Firth, an economist and a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center specializing in urban planning, among a host of other subjects. But welcome to the show, Salim. Thank you so much. So... Uh, we're here in D.C. I know some of our listeners are in places like D.C. We have listeners across the country, but you know, lot, lots in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, what is the like? So if you just had the it, state of the field, what are some of the trenchant problems in urban housing right now? So right now, everybody is focused on what we're even calling a crisis of affordability, mm. that housing in the biggest, best job markets in the United States is out of reach for typical people, people with mid-level skills who would be earning kind of average incomes wherever they move. They look at a Los Angeles or a Boston and they say, I can't make it work there. Mm. And so they end up taking lower salaries and living in places like Dallas or Atlanta, which is fine and those are great, but they would earn more and be more productive if they had the full choice of the United States and they don't have that choice because they can't afford to live in the lifestyle that they can reasonably expect with a middle income if they're in one of those coastal markets. And it's not would not only be better for them to not be priced out of cities like that, but be better for the economy and society on the net as well, right? Like they'd be in theory more productive, able to advance their skills in key ways if they were if they felt free to move wherever they wanted. That's right. So you know, goods that are traded across the world, like say computer code or anything manufactured or high level services those are, you know, those have to compete globally. Mm-hmm. And so when we see that, you know, uh, computer programmers make far more in San Francisco than they make in Austin, well, they have to be paid more to live there, but they wouldn't be able to be paid more unless they were more productive. Mm-hmm. And if the cost of living was lower in San Francisco, more programmers would move there instead of moving to Austin because for whatever reason, the combination of entrepreneurial skill and finance and teams of elite programmers makes everybody better. There's, I mean, there's that kind of natural clustering effect, which on the industry-wide scale, I mean, it's not unlike um, why uh, when you go to, um, I mean, on a very local level, if you want to shop at the Home Depot, you'll notice the Lowe's is right across the street. Right. And it's that's on a small scale, but it's true that like industries benefit from clustering and from close geographic proximity. And I, I wonder to some extent if that covers up some of this problem. If people mentally think, okay, uh, housing prices are high because my income's high, rather than realizing that, that I mean, I, I'm sure some part of that is true that because there's a thriving tech industry in Silicon Valley, that naturally housing prices would be a little higher than otherwise. Um, but a big chunk of that is is completely is not correlated to that at all. It has to do with 
other factors. So, so like, what are the the things that we can fix? I mean, we're not going to no no one here in Cato is going to say we should have less economic growth and innovation so that we have lower housing prices. I mean, that works. You go to, <laughs> you go to Cleveland; it's right. not a booming tech hub. Housing prices are low, but we're, that's not a good thing. But what what are the things we can control? Like, so what are driving? Right. Well, so to back to the the thing that you said before that, there are certainly places that are highly restrictive. But they don't have thriving economies, so housing prices are not particularly high. So if you think of Rhode Island, it's just as restrictive legally as Massachusetts, but the economy is a lot weaker, so housing prices are lower. Mm. So yeah, so that's essentially – high prices tell you that you you do have uh, restricted ha- uh, restrictive zoning or land use, but there are other places that don't have the high prices – Right. Um, that also have that. But yeah, so so what to do? I mean, in a sense, this is the easiest big problem in America <laughs> because uh, when every uh, problem you have looks like the lack of a house, a hammer is a really good tool. It's <laughs> a good line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So you can build more houses. Right. So it's, it's – yeah, in one sense, it's extremely simple and then the problem is sort of like, well – can I build a house? And then somebody says, no, you cannot build a house. And then that's the problem is convincing ah. the person who says you cannot build a house to let you build a house. Mm. So, I mean, it, it it's a very simple problem and it's straightforward. You Rising house prices mean that demand isn't matching supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so you increase supply. This should be straightforward. The, most housing construction is done by the private sector. So I guess what's the answer? Why aren't houses – being built to match that demand. So let's just walk through the sort of to build a house. Uh, what does it take to do even the simplest piece of of residential real estate development in the U.S.? So from a from a sort of physical point of view, um, you need a piece of land, you need labor, materials, and a little bit of physical capital. You know, the the machines that you use to to actually do the building. And from a financial perspective, there's something that I call the financial stack, uh, which is a you know sort of a programming term. You know, the idea of there's all these different pieces of code that build on each other to create a program like Microsoft Word. In in finance, you know, it starts with the mortgage underwriters, which are usually the the um, Fannie and Freddie or the FHA, but sometimes private, and they work about the same way that they're sort of doing really large scale insurance of millions and millions of mortgages. Then there's banks and uh, lenders that are actually doing the underwriting. And, you know, then there's the the developer who, you know, takes out a big loan to do some big project and then they hire contractors. Mm -hmm. And every step of this process has to justify to the step above it that it is a good project. Mm. So this actually makes it hard to be creative. So I think there's a, there are really interesting market problems. Even if we stripped away mm-hmm. uh, all of the regulatory aspects, the housing market is a really interesting multi-stage market. You can't at a large – you can do this you know, on your own property if you want to do something really funky and creative and you're allowed to. Great. But funky and creative is actually really hard. Mm-hmm. And so in in places where there's lots of land and it's easy to sort of do – cookie cutter projects, you know, like Texas, Atlanta, the the private sector works pretty well. It knows how to do a subdivision. It's done many of them. And it says, okay, these are the housing prices in the area. This is the trajectory. This is the population growth. We believe there'll be demand for this when you complete the project in five years. 
And we know what the cost of building, you know, 2,000 square foot homes on 10,000 square foot lots is. And you can sort of every step of that process is, is straightforward. Mm -hmm. So one thing just I, that I like to think about is, is how this private market works. And there's, there is room, I think, for a lot of creativity and growth on the private side. And how do we find new financial solutions to, and, and then sometimes technical ones, when you're looking at sort of the physical, how do we bring down the con actual construction costs in really dense places where there isn't a lot of land available for standard method construction? That's just the private side. Yeah, yeah. Now, the government side is then, you know, complete Byzantine morass. It's already this comp – I mean, even in the ideal conditions, it's already a complicated multi-agent, multi-stage process. And that's leaving aside, yeah, the, this Byzantine morass. Thing. Yes. yes. So, so the Byzantines. <laughs> this is an interesting case where local government is the most important and most restrictive aspect of government. Mm. The federal government actually has really very few regulations and requirements on the housing market. There's fair housing laws. You you know you can't discriminate. There are some uh, usually state the states have uh, building codes and basic safety standards and work standards, which not, nobody really objects to. And then the local governments they're the ones who are putting in tons of regulations. Uh, the states delegated their power of the using the, the police power of the state over land use uh, back in the early 1920s. Uh, and what we had was the proliferation of local zoning codes. So each city or county tends to have its own zoning code. Mm. And what a zoning code does is it says what you can use a specific piece of land for. And so there'll be in a typical city anywhere from maybe 20 to 200 distinct zones with Baroque titles that don't aren't the same from one city to another. <laughs> so, uh, you know, R7 in one city will be S1 in another city. And it's very hard to compare these unless you're, you know, an expert who's working in that area. And so your R7 might be you can build on in an R7 zone, you can build single family houses on uh, lots of at least 7,000 square feet in size. They have to have setbacks uh, on the front of 25 feet on each side of 15 feet, but a little bit less if it's a shed. <laughs> and on the back, uh, the main structure has to be 50 feet from the back of the lot, but a auxiliary structure like a garage or a shed can be only 10 feet from the back. So they'll have all yeah, these things. Yeah. Um, they will regulate the pitch of the roof, the height uh, of the of the structure, um, in some places, they'll regulate the materials used as a way to keep uh, housing costs up, right? So if you want to be an exclusive exclusive affluent community, one way to do that is to make sure that people are building with high-end materials so that only high-end homes can be built in your town. I've heard some controversy over like uh, – what was I reading recently about uh, wood stick frames? And so if capping – the new techniques, construction techniques have allowed – using wood frames rather than, you know, metal uh, for certain height buildings. Like we can actually make use wood for those purposes, but that's too cheap. And so there's an interest in, well, we're going to force people to use metal, even though it's no longer really necessary because that way we can prevent 
right. higher buildings, which more development, more people, et cetera. Yeah. Right. I think what's interesting, so first of all, cities have this power. They have the power to say, we can tell you exactly what you can and cannot do to a really fine level of detail on every piece of private property in the city. Yeah. And I think it's actually – people think that developers are really well-connected and have all this power. And they're, they often are well-connected, but being well-connected just means they know who to call and say, mother, may I? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, ultimately, the local authorities have just an absolutely phenomenal amount of power. I mean, we, we, we couldn't imagine the you know a local government saying, every citizen, this and only this is the field that you're allowed to work in. Right now, they say they can say like, okay, if you want to be a nurse, you have to get these, um, you know, approvals and licenses. But they don't say you can only be a nurse yeah, right. and you can only be a bartender. So we're doing that with land. Now, land is not people and doesn't have you know personality, yeah. but it does make it incredibly inflexible, uh, so that places can't shift from one use to another. So the result is Arlington County, uh, Virginia, where I work, has a huge housing shortage and then a 20% office vacancy rate, which is why Amazon chose Arlington because they were enormous quantities of office space sitting vacant Hmm. and they could get it for cheap. And that was was a good business decision on their part. But this arose from Suboptimal usage of of that real estate. Yeah, so so basically yeah. the the county uh, the county of Arlington says, well, you know, if we allow housing, then we have to educate people's children, and you know, there's some social services. So people are quite costly, but offices are really cheap. Office workers typically don't commit violent crimes, um, or create nuisances. They go home at night. So everybody wants to have offices in retail, which pay the taxes and don't cause many problems. And nobody wants to have uh, especially low-income families. Low-income families are sort of the, you know, you want to keep those away. They have children. They're poor. They cause problems. So a lot of zoning is about trying to curate who's in your city. And, of course, from a – I mean, if you zoom out to 50,000 feet, um, this is – the logic for locality – even if it, the, the ethics of it are that's problematic from an ethical perspective. Like we're going to keep out poor people because they're, you know, we don't want poor people here. <laughs> that's problematic from an ethical standpoint. But if you set aside even the ethics, while it makes sense from a local perspective, like for larger communities, like for an entire city, this is suboptimal because it's not like you're just you're just displacing folks. I mean, they're going somewhere. And so if you're you are suboptimally structuring your your broader community, um, pushing people into places where they're not going to be as productive, they're not going to be as prosperous, as happy. You're hurting the city to help the locality, basically, in some or you can. Um, I mean, I was reminded your um, in one of your articles, we'll, we'll put a link to your American Affairs article in the show notes. Uh, you gave, I think it was Trumbull, Connecticut, and right across the road from each other, um, there's like the good side of the tracks and the bad side of the tracks. And they put a development of like 200 units on the good side of the tracks, but the approval was only for one and two bedroom units because one, two bedroom units aren't going to attract folks with large families and, uh, and aren't, and it's going to attract like young upper income, young professionals with relatively few children. Yeah, that's right. Larger families of poorer families. And so it's a, it, it can be a mechanism, whether that's the intent or not. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It's a, it can be a mechanism of 
uh, socioeconomic and even racial segregation. That's right. Right. I mean, that it's very perverse. <laughs> I yeah. And, and you, you end up with, you know, people who, you know, couldn't dream in their, in their sort of private or expressive life of saying anything bad about, um, you know, disadvantaged racial minorities. Yeah. Then rapidly, you know, pursuing local policies of exclusion. Yeah. Um, we're seeing this in San Francisco right now where the city is trying to put some what they call navigation centers, which is essentially sort of homeless shelters with services to help to help homeless people. They're trying to distribute them around the city. And wealthy, progressive San Franciscans are raising large sums of money in GoFundMes to oppose <laughs> uh, homeless services in their neighborhoods. Uh, so everybody wants to do something about the homelessness problem, but they want to do it somewhere else. Do it over there. And for this is audio. I'm gesturing to the other side of the room. <laughs> we want to do something for those poor folks as long as they stay over there. Yeah. And homeless people obviously are are more stressful or, you know, sure. yeah. riskier feeling than, say, a working class immigrant family. But working class immigrant families face really the same uh, level and and universality of opposition, that there's virtually no community. It isn't just – and I think this was the case maybe in the 50s, that there were some communities that were really inclusive and said, hey, we just build lots of housing and it's cheap and anybody can live here and others were more exclusive. And it was sort of, okay, different strokes for different folks. You can you can choose where you want to live. But I think what's really important to recognize is that what we've seen is a homogenization of land use policy over time. So that in these coastal metro areas, nobody wants to include uh, lower income families. And it, it's sort of a, a race to – everybody wants to attract the 60-year-olds um, with, with large incomes. Everybody wants to attract the office buildings and nobody wants the, the you know, trailer park. Yeah, which makes life – make life very hard. I mean the, the folks bearing the greatest cost – of these policies or the greatest ill effects, I should say, um, are those who can least afford it uh, functionally. I mean, something else you mentioned, Salim, um, at, so the issue of developer power, like, so you're a private developer, you want to turn this, you know, plot of land into 50 unit apartment building or something. While it, it's not as simple as saying there's a quid pro quo going on every time you want to get approval for a project. I mean, that, that does happen. I mean, bribery and corruption is is a thing in, in that area. But even even in the best case scenario, even one that doesn't involve some kind of overt corruption, I was struck by how the system itself actually encourages a kind of – it creates an access problem. So it, I think the term is variances. Mm -hmm. So in, a, in effect, a lot – it sounds like – and maybe I'm wrong here, but it sounds like in a lot of areas, in most urban areas, essentially nothing is legal. When it comes to construction, but like everything is the base, the default is nothing is allowed until you ask for us to make it allowed. Mm -hmm. And so the variance is, okay, we get that our codes are so restrictive that you can't develop anything. So we'll make exceptions or variances for you if you apply for permission for those variances. And, and you need to get those variances in order to build anything functionally in an urban area. Which, but the only people who have the, you have to know the right people, you have to have some kind of background and experience in applying and successfully in getting these. Um, you have to be willing to wait. It prolongs the process. I mean, the whole thing seems calculated 
to create an access problem for new developers, new construction folks who aren't already familiar and baked into the system. Do I do I have that variances system right? Yeah. So variances are are often the smaller scale ones. Okay. So if you uh, own a particular piece of property and you want to change the use, say you would like to uh, um, open a guitar store in a place that's zoned for only um, grocery and convenience stores, you know, you go and you say, hey, look, this isn't actually going to cause that much trouble in the neighborhood. And they say, oh, yeah, you're right. We don't even know why we have this rule. We'll give you a variance. Uh, okay. So there's a lot of small variances like that. Or maybe you're a developer and you know the way that your property works out, you're supposed to have 7,000 square feet, but one works out to 6,900. And they say, okay, that's close enough. Mm-hmm. So a lot of variances are kind of small exceptions. The really big developer ones that we see now are, are what are called PUDs, planned Ooh. unit developments. <laughs> so it's the worst word. I hate this word. Um, and planned unit developments are essentially the planners get some creative power. The city planners, they use this restriction on especially doing big projects to say, well, okay, so you can't do this by right, but if you come to us, then we'll work with you and we'll tell you which materials to use and how it should look. And so it's essentially the the city giving itself creative control. And that's kind of in the in the good case scenario. So that's that's what happens in pro-growth cities. Like shockingly, Washington is actually a, a really good area for growth. No, really. No. Does not feel like a cheap no, area to live <laughs> when you live here. But if you compare it to um a lot of the other coastal cities, it's actually quite good. Hmm. So in Washington, you know, there's there's some strict limits that you can't break, like the height limit. But there's a lot of other things that you can you can sort of compromise with the city on. And the way you do this is the planned unit development and a community benefit agreement if you're in a neighborhood. So you're going to give some money to the, you know, fund some local services or pay for some local affordable housing. So you, you sort of make some side payments, which may be kind of optimal in a Kosian sense. Uh, it's hard to say. And – you it's better that you can make the payments and build than that you than that you wouldn't can. be allowed to yeah, yeah right. so it might it might be better it might be better and it might be that there are some real externalities to doing major projects and that you know it's really proper that you have to pay for some of the services that the city is then going to have to be providing right. transportation and and roads and you are going to congest things and so I, you know i don't reject out of hand the idea that major changes should pay for themselves um but what it really – this is all about the city getting creative control and the urban planning profession. So this is, this is a really weird sort of dissonance in urban planning. They're, they're a sort of um, Pharisees of uh, land use in that they all worship the altar of Jane Jacobs who is this sort of um, communitarian anti-planner from the 60s who, who really was the, the – the central voice of the um, anti-highway, anti-urban renewal movement, which said, stop bulldozing organic cities and building these uh, giant centrally planned monstrosities. And she was right about a huge number of things. And, and everybody sort of venerates her now. Yeah. You're not going to hear, hear me defending Robert Moses and the big right. yeah, old school and, planners. And you don't, even hear, you don't even hear the central planners defending Robert Moses anymore. So the central yeah. planners disavow central planning. <laughs> And so they all sort of, you know, light their candle every morning to Jane Jacobs. Yeah. But the structure of the profession is such that a whole bunch of people who all believe Jacobs and notionally believe in, you know, organicness, bottom-up 
uh, urban planning, organic growth. Multi-use districts and all that. Yeah. But they are planners and what they do is plan. Yeah. And they, they just can't mm. get away from that and, and, and they, they sort of – they can't unplan. They can't you know, <laughs> remove themselves from the equation. So you know you can use say the uh, planning expenditure of a city – as a rough measurement of how restrictive it is. So even though it's spending yeah. this money hiring people who are allegedly against central planning or, or philosophically against it, functionally what they end up doing <laughs> yeah. is imposing the same kinds of restrictions and the same kinds of forms everywhere. So if you know development in a certain city at a certain time all kind of looks the same, it's because the same small set of people have creative control. At the end of the day, you have a group of folks who, even when their intentions are good, right? They they want they want to imitate Jane Jacobs. They want lots of you know multi use districts. They want um, they want to avoid certain things like gentrification. They want to undo historic problems like redlining. Their their motives. I mean, this isn't to impugn their motives. The motives are always good, but that you you end up against something libertarians love to criticize, which is the um, the knowledge problem, Hayek's knowledge problem, right? That like no matter how smart or well intentioned or um, experienced you are, cities are complicated organisms, right? Towns. I mean, we, we talked about any individual property is a really complicated question of the interests of all those who live around it, the interests of the city and additional people in the schools and additional cars in the street, the interests of uh, whether what kind of business, a guitar shop or a pawn shop or what, like any individual project is an incredibly complicated confluence of different interests, different demand, you know, supply and demand, different knowledge sets, et cetera, let alone an entire city. So there's almost a conceit of a conceit of knowledge that goes on that leads to suboptimal outcomes. Like even when the intentions are good, we want mixed use development, but we're going to decide where that can happen. And there's just a fundamental disconnect there. That, that's what I'm picking up on. Yeah. And, and this is a podcast about innovation, right? So yeah. Fundamentally, what urban planners do is they look at they look for things that have worked in the past, and they try to reapply those. So mixed use is the craze because, of course, we went too far in single use for a long time. Um, but the upshot of that is that we have a lot of empty retail because it turns out that even in New York City, which is our hmm. you know Manhattan is by far the densest place in America, yeah. not every building has ground floor retail. <laughs> yeah. You can't even at New York densities you can't support ground floor retail with say six or seven stories. A very dense residential. You could put that on the avenues and then on the streets. It's mostly just residential. To what extent is this because we, I mean, we, the built infrastructure, I'm always struck by the extent to which the built infrastructure of our cities was so drastically changed from, say, the 1920s or 30s through the 1960s. And, and part of this is a story about, you mentioned highways earlier. It's a, it's a story about the, the making cars the centerpiece of American built built infrastructure that like we, my understanding is that New York at the turn of the 20th century so New York 100 years ago it was a very different looking place stuff was by nature very mixed use there's no zoning there's no but there's also no cars and so folks need to walk to work I mean I, some folks have you know horses and ride for but generally folks have to walk to work take early public transit elevated lines are starting to go up by then but we shifted. I mean, we drastically changed the the lived daily paradigm of what it meant to live and work in a city. And now we're trying to 
you know, reel that back in by forcing mixed use development. But the still basic infrastructure still encourages is all geared around vehicular traffic. Like, yeah. so it almost feels like it's a futile effort to to put back in the box what's what's gotten out. So I differ with a lot of urbanists in that I think cars are great. Okay, you're pro car. I'm I'm pro car. No, I'm not pro car everywhere. And and you know this sort of a this Manichaean divide when you get into these debates of like either cars are always good everywhere or cars are never good anywhere. And I think that if uh, if you read Alain Berto's new book. Um, Order Without Design, which is a fantastic piece on on it's sort of urban economics for urban planners cool. with a global perspective because he's he's like the Indiana Jones of urban planning and has <laughs> you know worked in Jakarta and Yemen and uh, Beijing and all these places around the world in in uh, the past you know fifty year career so he's a really interesting guy. But his main point about cities is they are about the thickness of labor markets. So a city is fundamentally a labor market. People move there to work and they don't move there usually for one job. And this is something I think Hmm. that maybe elites get wrong because we do move for one job, right? I got a PhD in economics and I literally had a global job search trying to match one economist with one job. And I could have moved to Wellington, New Zealand uh, or the middle of Iowa somewhere. And it's just sort of that's, that's the way this very elite job market works and it's similar for people in journalism and think tanks, et cetera. That's not normal. Mm. And for normal people in normal job markets, what you need is thickness. You need to be able to, from a given location, get to not just your job or a job, but get to a large selection of jobs. And if you're an employer, the same token, you need lots of potential employees, not just your current employees to have access to you. So... The U.S. kind of romanticizes this this kind of weird moment in history where we had uh, – and I think this was because of the nature of uh, early electric power. Um, we had very distributed manufacturing, right? So every town with a waterfall had a factory and they became little factory towns. That's actually a really dysfunctional economy, right? It mm-hmm. creates a monopsonistic labor market. Um, it creates a very fragile city because if the demand for that product goes away or there's a yeah. new competitor. So one company hosed, town. Right. Right, yeah. So that's, that's actually not great, mm. but it's very it's very romanticized because it happened in a moment when the U.S. was just surging to the forefront of global productivity. And you could be this tiny town in upstate New York making one product, but literally selling it all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it was really fascinating. But this, this was sort of an accident of where power sources were. Hmm. And as soon as electric power became not the main thing that you had to build your factories around or, or you know, before that falling water power, then that model disappeared because it actually never made sense to have uh, single factory towns. That's not good for workers. It's actually like, like not great for the employer in the long run. And we're moving back to the sort of mm, several millennia old trend of urbanization where we become more productive as we get bigger and bigger labor markets. Mm. All this about the car. The car is great because it gets people from their homes to lots of jobs. Yeah. And fixed route transit, which is, you know, what is romanticized by most urbanists, it has this major failing that the jobs have to be really concentrated in sort of a central district for the whole fixed route system to make work to, to work. And 
a lot of people will say, oh, here, look, we're going to build this little urban village and it's going to have everything you need. There's going to be an office building and then a scattering of services, you know, the, the ones that you – all the services you would need on a monthly or more basis and enough people to support all this. And people will leave occasionally, but most people will be able to do all their stuff locally. And that's a total fiction. Uh, it's great to have a grocery store and a post office and a library near you. And those are sort of like very generic yeah. things. But most people need to search for jobs in a really large market. We don't just take a close job. That's just not if – you, if you sort of pull your friends, that's not how it works. And the car is great because it lets you go in sort of any direction across this over, overlapping grid. Now, it's bad because the car takes up a lot of space. It takes up space while you're commuting and it takes up space while you're parked. Yeah. So I'm actually really hopeful for the kind of micro-mobility, self-driving, like the, the different kinds of transit that we are potentially evolving towards, which will potentially solve some of these space problems of cars. You can have that flexibility but, but not keep you, But space, get you yeah. away from fixed route. And I think pro-transit people need to start thinking a lot more about non-fixed route or um, – poly route transit, like what you get in third world cities where you've got these you know, guys who drive minibuses and yeah. they, they all have slightly different routes. And that functionally serves to create a much thicker grid. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should be thinking more about getting away from fixed routes and using our gains in technology and the ability to you know, use your phone to know when different kinds of transit are coming. We'll have to we, – we need to do a, an episode just on – so we did an episode with Jennifer Huddleston Skis from uh, Mercatus uh, about scooters, right? So yeah. very she, much down these lines. Um, we need to do – Jennifer, a, we'll, we'll always correct you if you say scooters and say it's micromobility. Micromobility, yeah, yeah. But everyone else says scooters. <laughs> so sorry, Jennifer. <laughs> say scooters. So you can check out that episode sometime. Um and we, we really do need to do more on urban transit, on the tension between – like you know everyone loves rail – but really buses are a much better investment if you're going to invest in urban transit. So we need to talk about that at some point. Um, but for sake of, of talking about housing, so we, we've got these really uh, uh, intense, even seemingly intractable problems. And part of that is because of, I mean, we're talking about millennia old changes in uh, kind of built space. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a shift back towards different, you know, a model that's centuries old. Um, so there's only so much that you can do when it comes to, to pushing back against some of these trends. Um, but there are some interesting things that are being done around the country to try to address the crisis of affordability, to try to reel in some of the worst abuses of well, I think zoning, you know, suboptimal uses of zoning power. So when we talk about some of those, um, it might be a term, it's probably, I mean, it's familiar to you and the folks who who read about urban housing, but maybe not to our listeners. So there's uh, what's called the YIMBY movement. Um, yes, with, in my backyard. Yes, in my backyard, which is the opposite of... Not in my backyard, NIMBY. 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 Okay. So why don't you flesh that? What is that? What, what's going on there with the NIMBY-YIMBY debate? So... The Yimby movement is is a really interesting case of a group of people who – many of whom felt personally excluded, right? So a lot of them are young renters who say, I am never going to be able to afford to buy my own house in a good commutable neighborhood in Boston or San Francisco or Los Angeles. And the reason is that they won't build houses for me. They're not building enough apartment buildings. And 
there's also a fundamentally sort of a pro-human aspect to the Yimby movement. Uh, Yimbys are almost all pro-immigration because it's the same uh, mood affiliation. It's the same sort of feeling about other people that if we all crowd together, we're actually better off. This is fundamentally what a city is. A city is a lot of positive externalities. There are negative ones and all the textbooks spend 90% of their time on negative externalities. (laughs) But if positive externalities did not outweigh negative externalities, we would not have urbanized over the last 5,000 years. Yeah. So clearly urban externalities are on net positive and the YIMBY movement at an intuitive level gets this. It says, if we are closer together if we allow people to do their thing near us, I will be better off. You will be better off. We'll all be better off. And this is a cross-domain thing. I mean, so when you cluster folks and the more different, the better. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, so diversity matters here as well. When you cluster folks together, you spark those serendipitous connections and opportunities. You get clustering effects for industries, a thick labor market. But you also get, I mean – Cultural innovation happens in these thick spaces. Um, there's a reason why most most trends come out of cities, not out of you know rural Iowa, right? So and the Harlem Renaissance takes place in Harlem for a reason in the right. city, right? Right, not rural Alabama, right? Yeah. So there's um um so so to your point, I mean, being pro human means being pro innovation, being pro urban as well. I mean, like all these things are, are integrated. Yeah. So, so where are we seeing this, this happen? Like my understanding is like San Francisco, it's surprisingly, it's a little bit surprising to me. It's in progressive cities actually. Like, yeah, well, progressive cities are where the problem is the worst, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the things, the sort of like radical, crazy ideas that these progressives have would make them more like Dallas. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, in one, in the one hand, yes, the Yimbies are, are mostly, uh, left-leaning people in very blue, very very blue places, but on the other hand, they're they're there because that's where the problem is. I think it's actually really instructive that San Francisco is really the hotbed and the and the, the home of Yimbyism uh, in a way where it has not nearly caught on as much in Los Angeles and New York. Interesting. And San Francisco has a tradition with Silicon Valley of. The idea that it's an optimistic city. Problems can be solved. We can, you know, make an app that fixes this. And then there were also just some serendipitous connections. There's a, a handful of individuals in San Francisco, uh, both in the activist space and then in policy, who put their efforts together and said, we can get to Sacramento first. And so where even in local San Francisco politics, the NIMBY interests, the sort of the, the homeowners who say, I don't want anything to change in my district. I don't want my home price to go down. Um, I moved here 40 years ago and it's fine. You should just leave. Yeah. They are very well represented and very well organized in local politics, but they didn't have any organization in Sacramento. Ah. The Yimbys got there first <laughs> and – went into the legislature and convinced mostly left-leaning legislators that, look, there are these local policies, which the state enables, that are hurting the poor, that are hurting innovation, that are hurting renters in favor of wealthy homeowners. So it's a sort of very a left-leaning argument that's made there. And I think they also just – when you tap into a problem, when you express 
a problem with a clear solution and a lot of people have that problem, they say, oh yeah, these people represent me. So it was sort of, it had good representatives out front who made a lot of noise and and got in the news by being in Sacramento first. And then people were like, yeah, I support that. So there's this weird case where two thirds of people in San Francisco support building more housing in their own neighborhoods. But the San Francisco political machine is still deeply entrenched against YIMBYism. So it's still a very NIMBY San Francisco. But the state lawmakers, because they, this machine hasn't been affected there, they just sort of look at the voters and go, well, look, the voters like YIMBYism. Yeah. And the voters want more housing. And they don't want insane quantities of more housing on their street. But if we can rein in the power of cities to regulate, then what we'll get is a little bit of growth everywhere, which you know, doesn't turn anybody's neighborhood into a construction zone for 10 years, right? So I, right. Nobody wants to live in a, in a construction zone. I, I get that. Right. But if you sort of spread this out and say, okay, if every block in suburban California got two more houses over the next decade, that wouldn't be revolutionary anywhere, but it would be revolutionary everywhere. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's rather than um, thinking of development as okay, we're going to fight about whether or not this one tract of this the city block is going to be turned into two hundred apartments, and all the and, and you know local single family homes next door are like, well, that's a this long project that's going to be very burdensome for me. I get why it's good for the city, but for me, this is going to be a pain. I'm going to be staring at that construction pit for a decade. And then there's going to be all this traffic, et cetera. Instead, you you kind of – you can upzone in a sense or allow um, a, a broadly – and my understanding, this happened in Minneapolis recently, like last year, where they basically said, look, across the board, we're going to change single-family housing zoning to up to like three units. That's right. So if you have a – you know, you want to decide you want to build up and have a granny flat or have a, you know, a second-floor apartment – Go for it. You don't have to come to the zoning board to ask permission. It's just or if you want to divide your big old house, which might have been built as a duplex originally mm. and then combined for some big family at some point, but is now illegal to resubdivide, <laughs> you can resubdivide it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Minneapolis put this in their in their comprehensive layout, and they have fairly strong rules that say that has to get implemented in zoning. So that will be implemented probably this year or next year, where the entire city of Minneapolis becomes. Uh, in any residential zone, triplexes, uh, you know, you buy right. So you can build a, a three-unit building. And that's actually how Minneapolis grew up originally. This is just going back to kind of the norm that had been then sort of choked off over years of nimbyism and, and ratcheting down yeah. what people are allowed to do with their land. So the the sort of promising approach – I do think local engagement is really important. And I actually think some of the NIMBYs, excuse me, some of the YIMBYs, because of their early success in Sacramento, believe that they can just win at the state. And I don't think like the NIMBYs are eventually going to, they, they organize really, really well yeah. for the last half century. I don't think they're going to suddenly stop organizing well and yield state houses to the YIMBYs everywhere. So you actually have to win this argument. And the argument usually, you know, it's played out at the local level. So what what your listeners can do is sort of go to their local planning meeting when there's hearings about some project in their neighborhood and say, yes, in my backyard. Yeah, I, I want this built. Yeah. I support this business owner's desire to expand their business. I support this homeowner's desire to build a granny flat. 
right now, a lot of hearings only get negative feedback. The only people who show up are those who are angry because if you don't mind, then you're not passionate, right? Like people are rarely passionate about somebody else's desire to repaint their house. Um, And so there's the homeowner or the developer who's in favor and then a bunch of angry neighbors and all the neighbors who aren't angry are at home, you know, watching something on TV. So part of the Yimby movement is just saying we actually need to activate the planners are often on our side philosophically, but you know they they listen to this public feedback and they can't kind of justifiably say, well, public feedback was mixed, so we're going to do the right thing. Yeah. If we force public feedback at least to be mixed, yeah. then they have a lot more room to say, yeah, there's no reason we shouldn't allow a duplex in this neighborhood. And I think we have to to provide folks who are. I mean, so folks who aren't angry about what's happening, who have a, you know, there's a natural, you only do things when you have a motivation. Sure. And so if your motivation isn't anger, you need something else or else you just stay home at Netflix and chill. And that thing can be a sense of of altruism, a sense of ethical obligation that being pro-development means being pro-people and pro-people who may not look or 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 have the same background as you, right? Or earn as much as you, earn as much as you. I, 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 yeah, or that's that's why I mean socioeconomic diversity. So like I think about this all the time, and I actually live most of the week in New Jersey, and there's all this preserved farmland everywhere, uh, and uh, preserved open space. It's of course always in the really tony neighborhoods and towns. Every time I see that, like I'm sure the intent was good. You know, that the, they wanted to preserve this land so that, I don't know, folks wouldn't be detached from nature or... I'm not so sure the intent was good. Okay, maybe but... <laughs> the intent wasn't good. Whatever the intent was, good or good or ill, the effect is to make this an exclusive, expensive neighborhood that only a certain kind of person, and that, that cuts across socioeconomic, you know, class lines, income lines, it cuts across in, in the context of central New Jersey, racial lines. So it's often disproportionately white homeowners in West Windsor keeping poor black homeowners in Trenton Right is how, you know, you wanted farmland, what you got was exclusion, right. whether that was your intent or not. And so, so, but giving people an altruistic sense, the reason why you go to your local zoning hearing is not because you're angry about development. It's because you care about your community and want to see it be a diverse, affordable place. Right. And this is why the local Yimby movements are so important because yeah. usually people aren't going to show up at a hearing alone. Nobody wants to be the lone voice. It's not so much fun to do an activity on your own. And so the local Yimby chapters, uh, which you know listeners can get plugged into in lots of cities, they'll sort of coordinate, okay, a bunch of us are going to go to this hearing. Yeah. And then it becomes a, a, a social thing. You're doing something with your friends that's helping your community and representing those who don't yet have a voice in your local political process. Yeah. That's 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 it's a cool. I think you're right, though, that we have to focus on this at, at, at a local and grassroots level. If you always rely on state preemption, that can go both ways. I mean, you can imagine in, in some state and organized interest going to the state to ban local yimbyism, mm-hmm. right? That's just as possible. And so you have to be really there's an issue there. I mean, in general, I think libertarians are going to default towards a towards decentralization and localism. Um, so I'm a little bit squiffy about the idea of state preemption of local you know, local, uh, local preferences. Sometimes it's necessary, but it, there, there's, it's problematic for a long-term sustainable movement. Right. And, it, and it, so the reason New Jersey has this, this preserved farmland issue is essentially the New Jersey Supreme Court in the 70s uh, in a series of Mount Laurel 
mm-hmm. uh, decisions said every community has to do their share of uh, building multifamily affordable housing. And so the way to get out of doing your share was to say, well, actually, we don't have any land because it's all preserved farmland. <laughs> and so oh, they sort of said, well, if you if you grow, you have to be more inclusive in your growth. And some communities said, oh, OK. We but a lot of communities said, OK, grow. we won't grow. Yeah, yeah. And it was basically the same in Massachusetts where there's a law called uh, 40B, which sort of gives this if, – if you do enough affordable housing in your development, you get to skip some local regulations – and the way to prevent that from happening is just to create conservation land and say, oh, no, this is just going to be forest forever. And that doesn't get counted against you in your 40B allocation because it's meeting this good environmental goal. So there's this sort of – we have to be really careful mm-hmm. when you just write – because there's so many ways to regulate land use. Yeah. When you just say, okay, we're going we're gonna to not allow you to use one form of regulation – there's you can find way. other ones and it might yeah. actually be worse. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think it's important to change the hearts and not just the legal structure. That's a very good point. Yeah. There, that that's I, I think um we might have to close things off there just for, for time's sake. Um but sometime we'll have to have you back on, Salim, to talk about I know you have thoughts and feelings about uh, local land use here in D.C. with the RFK Stadium and the Armory Redevelopment Projects. We'll have to have you on to talk about talk about that. Um, we, we didn't even really get to touch on gentrification, um, on addressing historic redlining. So there's a lot more that we need to we need to deal with. Uh, this is so, a great field. Yeah. Well, yeah seriously, you, this is a great decision for an economist to get into. Uh, how, how did you actually before we go, how did you get into why you get an economics degree at Rochester? At Rochester in macroeconomics. Yeah. And why do you decide, OK, I'm going to go from that to thinking about urban housing, working at Mercatus. I, I was doing – I was working at the Heritage Foundation. I was writing a paper summing up sort of a bunch of different costs of different types of regulations. Yeah. And I was just pulling from other academic estimates. Different scholars have estimated these things. And I said, well, housing regulation is clearly going to be one of the biggest. It's a huge market with tons of regulation. And I looked at the literature and lots of papers, but none of them gave me a kind of a, a rough and ready – like I can put a dollar figure on what regulation – nationwide is costing homeowners or, 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 you know, citizens, renters and homeowners like. And so I said, well, I can, you know, the data's here and I'm an economist. I can estimate this myself. It's not going to be, you know, maybe the the world's greatest estimate, but it's somewhere to start. So I did. But I I wanted to do better than that first effort. And so I kind of kept pushing on it and pushing on it. And um, yeah, kind of just went down that rabbit hole and said, this is way more interesting. It's also much more fun at parties to talk about uh, housing than macroeconomics. Yeah. Macroeconomics, people are really confused. They, you know, maybe they know about the Fed or they ask you what, what stock they should buy. But housing is great because everybody has lived in a house or wants to. Yeah. And uh, people have their own stories of real estate. People have really good intuition about how the market works. And that's just a lot more fun. Um to, uh, to to do the research in an area that everybody cares about. So now we can say Salim Firth, uh, expert economist, a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center, and great house party guest. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming, Salim. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.